Chapter 6 It was a great day and a solemn when the squire of Matstead went to Protestant communion for the first time. It was Easter Day, too, but this was less in the consideration of the village. There was first the minister, Mr. Barton, in a condition of excited geniality from an early hour. He was observed soon after it was light by an old man who was up betimes, hurrying up the village street in his minister's cassock and gown, presumably on his way to see that all preparations were complete for the solemnity. His wife was seen to follow him a few minutes later. By eight o'clock the inhabitants of the village were assembled at points of vantage, some openly at their doors, others at the windows, and groups from the more distant farms, decked suitably, stood at all corners, to be greeted presently by their minister, hurrying back once more from the church to bring the communion vessels and the bread and wine. The four or five soldiers of the village, a couple of billmen and pikemen and a real gunner, stood apart in an official group, but did not salute him. He did not speak of that which was in the minds of all, but he waved a hand to this man, bid a happy Easter to another, and disappeared within his lodgings, leaving a wake of excitement behind him. By a quarter before nine, the three bells had begun to jangle from the tower, and the crowd had increased largely when Mr. Barton once more passed to the church in the spring sunshine, followed by the more devout who wished to pray, and the more timid who feared a disturbance. For sentiments were not wholly on the squire's side. There was first a number of Catholics, openly confessed, or at least secretly Catholic, though these were not in full force, since most were gone to Padley before dawn, and there was next a certain sentiment abroad, even amongst those who conformed, in favor of tradition. That the squire of Matstead should be a Catholic was at least as fundamental an article of faith as that the minister should be a Protestant. There was little or no hot gospel here. Men still shook their heads sympathetically over the old days and the old faith, which indeed had ceased to be the faith of all scarcely twenty years ago, and it appeared to the most of them that the proper faith of the quality, since they had before their eyes such families as the Babingtons, the Fentons, and the Fitzherberts, was that to which their own squire was about to say goodbye. It was known, too, publicly by now, that Mr. Robin was gone away for Easter, since he would not follow his father. So the crowd waited, the dogs sunned themselves, and the gunner sat on a wall. The bells ceased at nine o'clock, and upon the moment a group came round the churchyard wall, down from the field path and the stile that led to the manor. First walking alone came the squire, swiftly and steadily. His face was flushed a little, but set and determined. He was in his fine clothes, rough and all. His rapier was looped at his side, and he carried a stick. Behind him came three or four farm servants, then a yeoman and his wife, and last, at a little distance, three or four onlookers. There was dead silence as he came. The hum of talk died at the corners. The bell's clamor had even now ceased. It seemed as if each man waited for his neighbor to speak. There was only the sound of the squire's brisk footsteps on the few yards of cobbles that paved the walk up to the gate. At the door of the church, seen beyond him, was a crowd of faces. Then a man called something aloud from fifty yards away, but there was no voice to echo him. The folk just watched their lord go by, staring on him as on some strange sight, forgetting even to salute him, and so in silence he passed on. Within, the church murmured with low talking. Already two-thirds of it was full, and all faces turned and returned to the door at every footstep or sound. As the bell ceased, a sigh went up, as if a giant drew breath. Then, once again, the murmuring began. The church was as most were in those days. It was but a little place, yet it had had in old days great treasures of beauty. There had been, until some ten or twelve years ago, a carved screen that ran across the chancel arch, with the rood upon it, and St. Mary and St. John on this side and that. The high altar, it was remembered, had been of stone throughout, surrounded with curtains on the three sides, hanging between posts that had each a carven angel, all gilt. Now all was gone, excepting only the painted windows, since glass was costly. The chancel was bare as a barn. Beneath the whitewash, high over the place where the old canopy had hung, pale colors still glimmered through where, twelve years ago, Christ had sat crowning his mother. The altar was gone. Its holy slab served now as a pavement within the west door, where the superstitious took pains to step clear of it. The screen was gone. Part lay beneath the tower, part had been burned. 
Christ's cross held up the roof of the shed where the minister kept his horse. The three figures had been carted off to Derby to help swell the Protestant bonfire. The projecting stoop to the right of the main door had been broken half off. In place of these glories, there stood now, in the body of the church, before the chancel steps, a great table, such as the rubrics of the new prayer book required, spread with a white cloth, upon which now rested two tall pewter flagons of wine, a flat pewter plate as great as a small dish, and two silver communion cups, all new. And to one side of this, in a new wainscoted desk, waited worthy Mr. Barton for the coming of his squire, a happy man that day. His face beamed in the spring sunlight, he had on his silk gown, and he eyed, openly, the door through which his new patron was to come. Then, without sound or warning, except for the footsteps of the paving stones and the sudden darkening of the sunshine on the floor, there came the figure for which all looked. As he entered, he lifted his hand to his head, but dropped it again, and passed on, sturdy, and, you would have said, honest and resolute, too, to his seat behind the reading desk. He was met by silence. He was escorted by silence. And in silence he sat down. Then the waiting crowd surged in, poured this way and that, and flowed into the benches. And Mr. Barton's voice was raised in holy exhortation, at what time soever a sinner doth repent him of his sin, from the bottom of his heart, I will put all his wickedness out of remembrance, saith the Lord. Those who could best observe, for the tale was handed on with the careful accuracy of those who cannot read or write, professed themselves amazed at the assured ease of the squire. No sound came from the seat half hidden behind the reading desk where he sat alone, and during the prayers, when he stood or kneeled, he moved as if he understood well enough where he was at. A great bound prayer book, it was known, rested before him on the bookboard, and he was observed to turn the pages more than once. It was indeed a heavy task that Mr. Barton had to do, for first there was the morning prayer with its psalms, its lessons, and its prayers, next the litany, and last the communion, in the course of which was delivered one of the homilies set forth by authority, especially designed for the support of those who were no preachers, preceded and followed by a psalm. But all was easy today to a man who had such cause for exultation. His voice boomed heartily out, his face radiated his pleasure, and he delivered his homily when the time came with excellent emphasis and power, all from the reading desk except the communion. Yet it is to be doubted whether the attention of those that heard him was where their pastor would have desired it to be, since even to these country folk the drama of the whole was evident. There, seen full when he sat down, and in part when he kneeled and stood, was the man who hitherto had stood to them for the old order, the old faith, the old tradition, the man whose horse's footsteps had been heard times and again before dawn in the village street bearing him to the mystery of the mass, through whose gate strangers had ridden perhaps three or four times in the year to find harborage, strangers dressed indeed as plain gentlemen or yeomen, yet known, every one of them, to be under her grace's ban, and to ride in peril of liberty if not of life. Yet here he sat, a man feared and even loved by some, the first of his line to yield to circumstance, and to make peace with his times. Not a man of all who looked on him believed him certainly to be that which his actions professed him to be. Some doubted, especially those who themselves inclined to the old ways or secretly followed them, and the hearts of these grew sick as they watched. The crown and climax was yet to come. The minister finished at last the homily, which invade more than once against the popish superstitions, and he had chosen it for that reason, to clench the bargain, so to say, all in due order. For he was a careful man and observed his instructions, unlike some of his brethren who did as they pleased, and came back again to the long north side of the linen-covered table to finish the service. He had no man to help him, so he was forced to do it all for himself. So he went forward gallantly, first reading a set of scripture sentences while the officers collected first for the poor box, and then, as it was one of the offering days, collected again the dues for the curate. It was largely upon these, in such poor parishes as was this, that the minister depended, and his wife. Then he went on to pray for the whole estate of Christ's church militant here on earth, especially for God's servant Elizabeth our Queen, that under her we may be godly and quietly governed. Then came the exhortation, urging any who might think himself to be a blasphemer of God and hinderer or slanderer of his word, or to be in malice or envy, to bewail all his sins, and 
not to come to this holy table, lest after the taking of that holy sacrament the devil enter into him, as he entered into Judas, and fill him full of all iniquities. So forward with the rest. He read the comfortable words, the English equivalent for Sursum Corda, with the Easter preface, then another prayer, and finally rehearsed the story of the institution of the Most Holy Sacrament, though without any blessing of the bread and wine, at least by any action, since none such was ordered in the new prayer book. Then he immediately received the bread and wine himself, and stood up again, holding the silver plate in his hand for an instant, before proceeding to the squire's seat to give him the communion. Meanwhile, so great was the expectation and interest that it was not until the minister had moved from the table that the first communicants began to come up to the two white-hung benches, left empty till now, next to the table. Then those who still watched and who spread the tale about afterwards saw that the squire did not move from his seat to kneel down. He had put off his hat again after the homily and had so sat ever since. And now that the minister came to him, still there he sat. Now such a manner of receiving was not unknown, yet it was the sign of a Puritan. And so far from the folk expecting such behavior in their squire, they had looked rather for popish gestures, knockings on the breast, signs of the cross. For a moment the minister stood before the seat, as if doubtful what to do. He held the plate in his left hand and a fragment of bread in his fingers. Then, as he began the words he had to say, one thing at least the people saw, and that was that a great flush dyed the old man's face, though he sat quiet. Then, as the minister held out the bread, the squire seemed to recover himself. He put out his fingers quickly, took the bread sharply, and put it into his mouth, and so sat again until the minister brought the cup. And this too he drank of quickly, and gave it back. Then, as the communicants one by one took the bread and wine and went back to their seats, man after man glanced up at the squire, but the squire sat there, motionless and upright, like a figure cut of stone. The court of the manor seemed deserted half an hour before dinner time. There was a Sabbath stillness in the air today, sweetened, as it were, by the bubbling of bird music in the pleasance behind the hall and the high woods beyond. On the strips of rough turf before the gate and within it bloomed the spring flowers, white and blue. A hound lay stretched in the sunshine on the hall steps, twitching his ears to keep off a persistent fly. You would have sworn that this was the only intelligence in the place. Yet at the sound of the iron latch of the gate and the squire's footsteps on the stones, the place, so to say, became alive, though in a furtive and secret manner. Over the half-door of the stable entrance on the left, two faces appeared, one which was Dick's, sullen and angry, the other that of a stable boy, inquiring and frankly interested. This second vanished again as the squire came forward. A figure of a kitchen boy in a white apron showed in the dark doorway that led to the kitchen and hall, and disappeared again instantly. From two or three upper windows, faces peeped and remained fascinated. Only the old hound remained still, twitching his ears. All this, though there was nothing to be seen but the familiar personage of the place, in his hat and cloak and sword, walking through his own court on his way to dinner, as he had walked a thousand times before. And yet so great was the significance of his coming today, that the very gate behind him was pushed open by sightseers, who had followed at a safe distance up the path from the church. Half a dozen stood there staring, and behind them, at intervals, a score more, spread out in groups, all the way down to the porter's lodge. The most remarkable feature of all was the silence. Not a voice there spoke, even in a whisper. The maids at the windows above, Dick glowering over the half-door, the little group which, far back in the kitchen entrance, peeped and rustled, the men at the gate behind, even the boys in the path, all these held their tongues for interest and a kind of fear. Drama was in the air, the tragedy of seeing the squire come back from church for the first time, bearing himself as he always did, resolute and sturdy, yet changed in his significance after a fashion of which none of these simple hearts had ever dreamed. So again in silence he went up the court, knowing that eyes were upon him, yet showing no sign that he knew it. He went up the steps with the same assured air and disappeared into the hall. Then the spell broke up and the bustle began, for it was only half an hour to dinner and guests were coming. First Dick came out, slashing to the door behind him, and strode out to the gate. He was still in his boots, for he had ridden to Padley and back since early morning with a couple of the maids and the stable boy. He went to the gate of the court, the group dissolving as he came, and shut it in their faces. A noise of talking came out of the kitchen windows and the clash of a saucepan, 
The maid's heads vanished from the upper windows. Even as Dick shut the gate, he heard the sound of horses' hooves down by the porter's lodge. The justices were coming, the two whose names he had heard with amazement last week as the last corroboration of the incredible rumor of his master's defection. For these were a couple of magistrates, harmless men indeed as regarded their hostility to the old faith, yet Protestants who had sat more than once on the bench in Derby to hear cases of recusancy. Old Mrs. Marpledon had told him they were to come, and that provision must be made for their horses. Mrs. Marpledon, the ancient housekeeper of the manor, who had gone to school for a while with the Benedictine nuns of Derby in King Henry's days. She had shaken her head and eyed him, and then had suffered three or four tears to fall down her old cheeks. Well, they were coming, so Dick must open the gate again and pull the bell for the servants, and this he did, and waited, hat in hand. Up the little straight road they came, with a servant or two behind them, the two harmless gentlemen chattering as they rode, and Dick loathed them in his heart. The squire is within? Yes, sir. They dismounted, and Dick held their stirrups. He has been to church, eh? Dick made no answer. He feigned to be busy with one of the saddles. The magistrate glanced at him sharply. It was a strange dinner that day. Outwardly, again, all was as usual, as it might have been on any other Sunday in spring. The three gentlemen sat at the high table, facing down the hall, and since there was no reading, and since it was a festival, there was no lack of conversation. The servants came in as usual with the dishes. There was roast lamb today, according to old usage among the rest, and three or four wines. A little fire burned against the reredos, for cheerfulness rather than warmth, and the spring sunshine flowed in through the clear glass windows, bright and genial. Yet the difference was profound. Certainly there was no talk, overheard at least by the servants, which might not have been on any Sunday for the last twenty years. The congratulations and good wishes, or whatever they were, must have been spoken between the three in the parlor before dinner. And they spoke now of harmless usual things— news of the countryside, and tales from Derby, gossip of affairs of state, of her grace who, in a manner unthinkable, even by now dominated the imagination of England. None of these three had ever seen her. The squire had been to London but once in his life, his two guests never. Yet they talked of her, of her statecraft, of her romanticism. They told little tales one to the other as if she lived in the county town. All this, then, was harmless enough. Religion was not mentioned in the hearing of the servants, neither the old nor the new. They talked, all three of them, and the squire loudest of all, though with pauses of pregnant silence, of such things as children might have heard without dismay. Yet to the servants who came and went, it was as if their master were another man altogether, and his hall some unknown place. There was no blessing of himself before meat. He said something, indeed, before he sat down, but it was unintelligible, and he made no movement with his hand. But it was deeper than this, and his men who had served him for ten or fifteen years looked on him as upon a stranger or a changeling.